Well, good, good morning, everybody. Why don't we go ahead and get started? Hung and open up the word of prayer, and we can get going into Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and we just give you praise for another opportunity to come and, and worship you this morning, Lord, and, and uh, teach and uh, study your word. I thank you, Lord, for uh, our time together. I thank you for the book of Daniel, and I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to um, just understand it. I pray, Lord, that you would be honored this morning. We thank you, Lord, for uh, just everyone that has been able to come here and gather, and we just pray, Lord, that you would be with us, make us attentive and help us to understand your word. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Daniel chapter 5. We're going to start in this morning. And you notice I use the phrase start in, which is an indication that we're not going to finish Daniel chapter 5 today, but, we'll, um, but we will start in it this morning. So in the first part of Daniel chapter 5, uh, if you want to turn there, we're going to cover a bit of history in our study today. Oh. bit of history in our study today, if I need to talk quieter. Um, looking at some of the events that happened around this stage in Daniel's life and be, um, between the events of chapter 4 and what is going to happen in chapter 5. Um, I don't know about you, but I find the history um, to be fascinating when it comes to the book of Daniel, um, and not just with Daniel, but all of Scripture, because really it brings context to the things that we're studying um, and we've seen a lot of history in the book of Daniel so far, and it has all centered on the kingdom of Babylon and um, the kingdom of Babylon led by King Nebuchadnezzar. And as much as you could say that the first four chapters focused on Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you have to include King Nebuchadnezzar as a main character uh, of the book up to this point. In fact, really... Nebuchadnezzar is the only one who has appeared in all four chapters of Daniel, and he has played a critical role in every one of the chapters so far. In chapter 1, we looked at the history of the book from the standpoint that it was Nebuchadnezzar who came in and besieged Jerusalem and took captives back to Babylon with him, taking 60 to 70 youths from the noble families. Um, as hostages to ensure the compliance of uh, the Jews, of the nation of Judah. And although the book doesn't deal with it directly, we talked about how it was Nebuchadnezzar who came back to Jerusalem two more times over the next 20 years and deported the rest of the nation back to Babylon as well. Destroying the city of Jerusalem and leaving only a handful of people in the nation of Israel to work the land, all the rest became captives. And if you remember in our discussion back in chapter 1, this was a judgment by God on the nation of Israel because of their sins against God. Because of the Sabbath years that they had failed to let the land rest over a period of 490 years. And if you divide that out every seventh year in 490 years, you get 70 years, which was the purpose for the judgment, the length of time. Now, the prophet Jeremiah in the 25th chapter of that book writes about the captivity of Jerusalem at the hands of the Chaldeans. And Chaldeans and Babylonians are the same people, if you ever get those confused. Um, but the captivity or the captivity of Jerusalem at the hands of the Chaldeans under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. And in Jeremiah chapter 25, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read a portion of that. But if you remember, the prophet Jeremiah wrote as a contemporary of Daniel's. He was writing from Judah before, during, and after the deportations, and therefore he had a very unique perspective on all that was going on. But in chapter five, chapter 25 sorry, of, of Jeremiah, it becomes apparent that the Israelites are not going to repent and they are not going to turn from their wickedness. And if you look at verse 8 of Jeremiah 25, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them. 
and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, and the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. So here's a prophecy of the captivity itself. He tells them that Babylon is going to take them captive and that they will be taken captive for a period of 70 years. And the whole land will be a desolation during this time. And if you notice in that passage, God is talking about Nebuchadnezzar and he calls him my servant. Now in our last study, we talked about how it's possible, and I think probable, um, that Nebuchadnezzar truly became saved at the end of his life, toward the end of his life, after the events that we saw in chapter 4, which you could definitely say was a life-transforming experience for him. But when Jeremiah says this, and talking about him being my servant, um, God did not call Nebuchadnezzar my servant because he was saved, or because he was going to save him. That's not what he's talking about when he calls him my servant. Now, this is due to the other truth that we saw in Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar was told by the angel in verse 17 of Daniel 4, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. And this was God's sovereignly determining that, that Nebuchadnezzar would be the king of Babylon and that God was going to use Babylon and its king to do his will in bringing about the deportation and the punishment of the nation of Israel. In that respect, in this prophecy by Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar was acting as the servant of the Most High God. Now, most of what Jeremiah has said to this point, or that point that I read in Jeremiah 25, um, we've seen that already. We've talked about it before, but in, in Jeremiah 25, there's more to the prophecy. Starting in verse 12, it says, Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, and their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations." For many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them, even them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. So at the end of the 70-year period, what's going to happen? God is going to be finished with the Chaldeans, the Babylonian Empire. They will have served the purpose as the rod that God used to punish the nation of Israel. And then they will be destroyed for their iniquity. He will bring down judgment upon the Babylonians. Now, that's not the only place in Scripture that we see this. The prophet Habakkuk, for example, writing prior to the time of the first deportation, he knew this as well. And he struggled with the use of the Chaldeans. If you know about Habakkuk, he he has this... um, He's struggling with what's going to happen, with what he knows is going to happen, so he cries out to God, and God responds to him. And So he's struggling with the use of the Chaldeans as the instrument of God's judgment on the Jewish nation. How could God use a pagan nation to judge his chosen nation, those, he says, who are more righteous than they are? In that little book, there's this dialogue, and Habakkuk is questioning God, and God gives him his answer. So in that dialogue, God declares that he will sovereignly use the Chaldeans to accomplish his judgment, but then the Chaldeans will also be judged for their own iniquities as well. So this is a picture of the sovereignty of God and the way that he accomplishes his will, even though the nations, um, or even through the nations, even through those who did not acknowledge him, God uses them in his purposes. And I think this is an important part of God's sovereignty that we need to keep in mind. God can use and does use anyone to accomplish his purposes. Do you remember what the angel said? God is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. And this didn't just pertain to King Nebuchadnezzar, right? This was 
this was the general way that God works, and it just happened to be referring to Nebuchadnezzar at that point in time. It pertains to anyone and everyone that has ever been in a position of power in the world. This pertained to Pharaoh. It pertained to David and Solomon. It pertained to men like Napoleon, men like Hitler. It pertained to Donald Trump. It pertains to Joe Biden. There has never been a single person in a position of authority in this world that God has not put there for some purpose. There's never been a king rise. There's never been an overthrow of a government that has occurred or an election outcome that God did not have absolute control over. And I think that's comforting. for That should be comforting for us. I say should be. This is not always easy. But I say that it should be comforting for us because on those nights when we're watching election results on TV and we're wringing our hands and pulling out our hair because our candidate missed getting voted in by the smallest of percentage points, or even when they seemingly had it won when we went to bed and the next morning when we got up, it was not the case anymore. God is not sitting on his throne wringing his hands with us. If God had wanted that candidate in, that candidate would be in. And you might say, well, wait a minute, what about all the things that come with it, right? What about, does God want abortion rights? Does he want gay marriage? Does he want all of the, does he agree with all of the policies and all those things that have been elected into government? And no, that's not necessarily the case. That doesn't follow along with it. I'm not saying that everyone who ever gets appointed to government is always going to be pleasing to God or that they always do everything that God wants them to do. Just take Nebuchadnezzar again, for example. The one to whom this statement was made, it is absolutely clear from Scripture that God wanted him to be in power. We've seen that through several of these chapters. But God did not agree with his decision to create a 90-foot idol and have everyone fall down and worship it. God was not accepting of his individual decisions to worship gods of wood, stone, and metal, as Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar would have done. God was not accepting of his pride and of his arrogance when he took all the credit for the wonders of Babylon to himself. Habakkuk makes it clear that although God brought the Chaldeans to power and was going to use them to accomplish his will, he was also going to bring them low in judgment because of their iniquities. You cannot deny that God put Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire into power. But that doesn't mean that he was accepting of everything that they did. During the first century, from 54 to 68 A.D., an emperor by the name of Nero was in charge of the Roman Empire. And you might remember Nero. He was widely considered to be the first emperor to make Christian persecution a government-sponsored event. And during his reign, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. And in the 13th chapter of Romans, we read, Let every person be in subjection to the government authorities, governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. This is saying the same thing that the angel told Nebuchadnezzar. Those in government in positions of authority, they are established by God. There is no authority apart from God. Nero was in charge of the Roman Empire because God set him up in that position of authority. Was he a godly man? No. Was he a good man? No. Was he an evil and wicked man? Yes, he was. And God put him in power and gave him authority at that point in time. In that same letter in Romans chapter 9, Paul says that God raised up Pharaoh as well, not a friend to the Jews at all. So why am I telling you all this? Do I want you to think that God is responsible for putting... Did that just cut out? Okay. Okay. I'll take a drink. Do I want you to think that God is responsible for putting only evil men in power? That he has some fascination with sinful leaders? No. In fact, in most cases, we're not going to have any idea why certain men are put 
in power while others aren't. But I'll, I'll tell you this, and this is why I'm emphasizing all this to you. We don't need to be fearful when our guy doesn't get elected. And we certainly shouldn't ever say God's will was thwarted today. Because it wasn't. And that's the point that we see in Daniel chapter 4. God sets lowly men over mankind. He puts them in authority. And that's the point that we see in Romans chapter 13. All authority exists, or that exists, was established by God. Authority that wasn't established by God, it doesn't exist. We don't have to have faith in the systems that govern us, but we do have to have faith in God, because God is sovereignly in control of these things. So I may not like a policy that's put in place by my government, and I may exercise my right to vote to replace or repeal that policy or to keep it from being implemented in the first place, but in the end, no matter which way that vote goes, I can rest easy because I trust in the Lord. So we ought to keep in mind that God causes nations to rise and nations to fall. God brought the Chaldeans to power and he used them to accomplish his will. And now as we get to Daniel chapter 5, which I hadn't forgotten, that's really where we're supposed to be today. We're going to see what Jeremiah was talking about in this 25th chapter. When God is done with the Chaldeans and when he is going to punish them for their iniquity. In chapter 5 of Daniel, we're going to see this kingdom come to an end. By the opening of chapter 5, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to be long gone. He's out of the picture. And we're going to see the state of affairs in Babylon after a lengthy succession of kings has come and gone in its history. So as we look at the opening verses, we'll get a little glimpse of the history of the time and we'll set the stage for all that will come next. So the first thing that we see is the introduction of a new character, which is what we open up with in the very beginning of verse 1. Verse 1 says, Belshazzar the king, and we're going to stop right there. This is obviously not the same king that we saw in the last chapter, and there's really no explanation given. We simply have this chapter start with the words, Belshazzar the king, and we go right into the events that take place with him. There are many instances of people having multiple names in history. And that is true for a lot of the Babylonian kings as well. In fact, we'll talk about one in just a second here. But in this case, Belshazzar is not Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar is not another name for Nebuchadnezzar. By most accounts, the events that are taking place here in Daniel chapter 5 are over 20 years after the events of chapter 4. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for about 23 years or so by this point in time. Nebuchadnezzar's reign ended right around 562 B.C., and the events that take place here are somewhere around 539 B.C. So is Belshazzar the next king? Is he the king that took over from Nebuchadnezzar? No, he's not. And so I want to take you on a little history trip to see the line of succession of the kings after Nebuchadnezzar. So we see how Belshazzar fits into the picture here. After King Nebuchadnezzar died, he was succeeded by his son, a man by the name of Evil Merodach, or Amol Merodach, depending on where you're reading about this person's name. That's what I mentioned before about names can change. So he was evil Merodach, and there's reason to believe that evil Merodach took after his father in his later years, because he seemed to have some respect for the Jews in captivity. So the next king that came in seemed to have some respect for the Jews. Um, and I want to take a look at this with you for just a moment. Turn over to 2 Kings for a second. Uh, okay, more than a second, but turn over to 2 Kings. Chapter 24. In 2 Kings, we see the deportations of the Israelites from Jerusalem. And if you look with me at 2 Kings 24, we'll look down at verse 10. And it says, At that time, 
The servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. So at this time, during this specific campaign, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem and takes the king of Judah captive. And he actually ends up putting his uncle on the throne in Jerusalem. Um, so look at verse 13 also while we're here. See what else he took with him. It says, And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon king of Israel had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. So here we see he doesn't just take the king, but he also takes the treasures. And that will be important in, uh, as we go on in Daniel chapter 5. Now, turn with me over to the very last verses in 2 Kings chapter 25, and we'll look down at verse 27. And we're going to see, see King Jehoiachin again. In verse 27 it says, Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month and the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. So here we see something of Nebuchadnezzar's son. This is evil Merodach, who is Nebuchadnezzar's son. He releases the king of Judah from prison. He had been in prison this whole time. All the years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, but now... One of the first orders of business for his son is to free Jehoiachin, and he treats him kindly. He treated the king of Judah with respect. Now, why do we need to see this? Because I believe that this shows something of the influence of Nebuchadnezzar in his life and the respect that he had for the Jews after all of those years. The son of Nebuchadnezzar was kind to God's people, was kind to Daniel's people. And as we go along in Daniel chapter 5, I think we'll see that influence reveal itself again. So go ahead and turn back to Daniel chapter 5. So after Nebuchadnezzar came his son, evil Merodach, but he didn't remain king for very long. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years. His son only reigned for two years. Evil Merodach was only on the throne for two years, and that's because he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, this one's hard to pronounce, Neriglisar, Neriglisar, something along those lines. And thus began the contention for the throne. And if you think about it, Nebuchadnezzar was a very powerful king, and so he was in power for 43 years. After he was deposed, or after he died, then there would be this a little more infighting probably going to happen to figure out who was really going to be next. Evil Merodach was, was killed then, assassinated. And really, this shows what we talked about in chapter 2, where we see the strong head of gold that died and the divisions that take place afterwards bringing in the seeds of ruin. And that's really what happened in Babylon. So Nereglisar lasted for four years, but then he died and he was succeeded by his son, who was still a child. And we don't know how old he was as a child, but his name was Labashi Marduk. Um, and this poor guy only lasted anywhere from three to nine months as the leader of Babylon because he was beaten to death by conspirators. And we don't know for sure, again, how old he was at the time of his death, whether he was a small child and they just didn't want a small child, or he might have been a teenager. But in any event, apparently a group got together and decided that a child couldn't rule Babylon, and so they, they beat him to death. And from that group of conspirators, they appointed a man named Nabonidus to take the throne. Nabonidus was not an heir, an heir of Nebuchadnezzar, although he was sort of related by marriage to Nebuchadnezzar. He was married to either a widow of Nebuchadnezzar 
or a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And again, that's a little unclear. We're not exactly sure which, but um, we don't know if he married her to legitimize his reign or if he was already married to her when he was set up. But in either case, this was, a rela- this was the relationship that he had with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this woman that he had married had a son, and that son's name was Belshazzar. The same Belshazzar that we see here in Daniel 5, 1. So Belshazzar was either the son of Nebuchadnezzar, or he was a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. It could really be either one, and he could have either been the son or the, um, the adopted son of Nabonidus. But in any case, this is who he was. So now we get kind of get to see well where Belshazzar comes into the picture here. Now, if all that wasn't confusing enough, there's a little bit more that we have to say about Belshazzar and Nabonidus. The first thing is that up until about 100 years ago, the mention of a man named Belshazzar was another reason why the book of Daniel was considered to be fake. Because there was no mention of him in historical records. Nobody could find any record of anybody named Belshazzar back in that point in time. So, of course, what do people do? They say, well, I can't find anybody named Belshazzar. Daniel must be fake. It must not be true. However, in the late 1800s, in the excavations around Babylon, a cylinder was found, known as the Nabonidus Cylinder. And there were several of these found that contained historical records. And they were made, some were made of metal, but this one in particular was made of clay, and it was found in a place called Sipper. And you don't need to remember that. There won't be a quiz on any of this, so don't worry about that. But these cylinders contained a record of some of the work that Nabonidus had done to restore three temples. And when this cylinder from Sipper was translated in the early 1900s, it was discovered that Nabonidus made mention of his eldest son, a son named Belshazzar, just like Daniel mentions in this chapter. So, not that the Bible needs outside help to determine whether or not it's accurate, but evidence from other sources has been found to corroborate what it is that we're seeing here. And the second thing that I want to point out, a little more extra information, um, is this is some, something that has posed a problem for understanding how Belshazzar could be the king. There's no record of Nabonidus ever relinquishing his throne to his son. He had this son, and we know that he had a son named Belshazzar, but other historical records show that Nabonidus was still king of Babylon when the kingdom fell to Medo-Persia. And so some have trouble explaining why Daniel then says that Belshazzar is king, and as we see in the end of the chapter, he's the one that dies when the Medo-Persians come in. The answer lies in the fact that while Nabonidus was king, and he ruled for about 17 years, he chose not to rule from the city of Babylon. He ended up only spending about three years of his reign in the city of Babylon. Nabonidus set up his base of operations in a place called Tema, which was located on the western side of the Arabian Peninsula, a place that if you were to travel between Babylon and Tema, it would take days or weeks for you to get from one to the other. Nabonidus was not a worshiper of the Babylonian god Bel or Marduk, but the Assyrian god Sin. And so the speculation is that he did not feel welcome ruling in Babylon, which was everything there was set up to worship Marduk. So what did he do? He went away and he ruled from Tema, but in his place he left his son as a co-regent to the kingdom. And therefore, as far as those living in Babylon were concerned, Belshazzar was the one who had been set up as co-regent. He was the one actually ruling from the city of Babylon. And that's what we're seeing here. So, now we know the character. Now we've tackled those first two words or three words in the chapter. Now we can take a look at what's going on here. Thanks for doing my homework for me. No problem. No problem, Jay. (laughs) Verse 1, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. 
Belshazzar was having a party. A great feast for a thousand nobles. That's a pretty large party. Some say that this was too large for a party, that there's no way that he could have fed that many people, but that's not really true. Some of the Persian leaders were known to have eaten with 15,000 people at daily meals. Alexander the Great had 10,000 people at his wedding ceremony. Archaeologists have found evidence of even greater feasts going on in ancient history. And you know, it always astounds me that some people can't accept some of the things that are seen in the Bible until they can be proven from archaeology or history. There, could have, there couldn't have been that many people. Just, there just seems like way too many. What? They've proven that? Okay, well, I, then I guess it's true. And that's really the attitude that, that a lot of people have. And I personally wonder why our attitude can't be, well, I know they, they found the name Belshazzar on some clay cylinder somewhere, but I'm just not sure he really existed. Wait a minute. He's mentioned in Daniel? Oh, well, then he must be a real person, right? Sounds, seems to me like that's what our attitude should be with this stuff. But in any case, this is the feast that he's putting on for a thousand nobles. And what, else, and what were they doing? He says, it, it says they, were, they were drinking wine. Okay, so what, right? It's a party so that there's, there's wine there. They all drank wine in those days. But the point here is that this is what this party was about. This is what became the focus. They were having a drinking party. The king was in their presence, it says, or some translations say he was before them. The king was the center of attention at this party. He most likely had the seat of honor and was positioned at the head of the room, possibly even elevated over them in some way. So that's the stage. He's in his place of honor. They're feasting. The wine is flowing, and the king is drinking wine before them all. And they're just having a grand old happy time in this great hall. Now there's something else that we need to understand about this situation um, that the passage doesn't tell us. There was something else going on at this moment this very moment that this party was going on in Babylon. The city of Babylon was under siege. It was surrounded by the Medo-Persian army while this party was going on. And they didn't come up and surround it during the party. It wasn't some sneak attack where they just came up while the party was going on. They had probably been there for months at this point. And you might say, what a strange time to throw a party when your city is under siege. And you'd be right. It is a strange time. But you also have to realize that the city of Babylon was supposedly impenetrable. It was a fortress. It was 15 miles square, surrounded by a wall that was close to 300 feet high. And those walls were around 90 feet thick. They were built extraordinarily thick. And those were the outer walls. There was also an inner wall inside of that. It had massive towers that sat on top of the walls so that they could see their enemies coming. They could observe everything that was going on around them. And they had massive bronze gates to keep all the invaders out. And in addition to the fortification, it said that they had enough supplies within the city walls to last at least 10 years. And they weren't going to run out of water either because they had designed the city so that the river Euphrates ran underneath the walls and through the middle of the city, providing an ample water supply. So those inside the city were very comfortable. They were very secure, and they felt like they had no worries at all. So what if the Medes and the Persians were camped outside? From their perspective, they weren't getting in. There was no need to be concerned for the army that was camped around the city, or so they thought. Plus, they'd been there for months, and they hadn't gotten in yet, so... So even with this siege going on, the king throws this massive party. Well, in the course of events, things start to get a little out of hand in this party. Verse 2, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. 
Now, this all starts off with the phrase, when Belshazzar tasted the wine. What does this mean? This doesn't mean as soon as he took a sip, tasting how good the wine was. This means that he was tasting the wine. The wine was affecting him. It was clouding his judgment. He was over the legal limit. However you want to put it, Belshazzar was getting drunk. That's what it's saying here. And so as a result of this, what does he do? He calls for the vessels from the temple of God to be brought in. Now, you remember, we just looked at that a little while ago in 2 Kings, right? When Nebuchadnezzar took the king of Judah back to Babylon, he also took the treasures from the temple. And we also talked about that when we studied chapter 1 of Daniel as well. Now, some of you may have caught on to the phrase in verse 2 that said Nebuchadnezzar, his father, and thought, oh, well, see, this shows that Nebuchadnezzar was his father, not his grandfather. But really, in the language of the time, grandfather, father, there really wasn't a firm concept of your grandfather, your father, your great-grandfather like we have. There was no specific word to signify anything other than father. So really, this just indicates a male in the past from which he was descended. Um, So that's not a good indicator of a direct relationship. But it was Nebuchadnezzar who took the vessels back to Babylon. Taking the vessels from the temples of those you conquered was seen as a victorious statement. My God is better than your God kind of thing, right? I mean, that's why you would loot the temple of someone else's, um, someone else's God. Now, they were apparently singled out or grouped together in some way. They didn't have to be found or dug out of storage. They were easy to get to. They knew he called for them, and he, that people knew where to go get them. So maybe all the vessels from the conquered nations were given a specific place, like, like in a museum of some sort. Or maybe Nebuchadnezzar or his son, Evil Merodach, who had, um, had had them put in some type of place of honor. And we don't really know, but in any event, they were easily retrieved when the king asks for them. And what he does next with them is even... More amazing, he has the partygoers start using them to drink from. They're used in these drunken festivities. And you see here also the list of who was invited. Of course, the king and his nobles were there. The king's wives, we don't really know how many. The king's concubines were all invited to this party. And I don't think we can sugarcoat this. This was not just a party for drinking. This was a drunken, hedonistic brawl that was going on here. Back in those days, these parties would not have been just sitting around at tables in nice clothes drinking wine. This was an all-out. I don't have to paint the picture. I think you know what I'm saying. It was not a pleasant situation. Those were the types of parties that they had. It was an all-out scene of depravity going on here. And right in the middle of it, They call for the vessels for the house of God to be brought in, to be included in this party. What's Belshazzar doing here by calling for these things? It's not that they ran out of cups. They didn't run out of the little red solo cups or whatever. That's not why he's calling for these vessels. He is mocking God. That's what he's doing. They take these vessels dedicated to God, and as they're getting drunk and doing whatever else that they're doing, they are praising the names of their own gods, the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. These inanimate objects. This is a mockery of the Most High God. The fact that that they use these vessels isn't really the issue. In and of themselves, these things were nothing. These things were just gold and silver vessels, right? They were just objects. But what they represented and what the Babylonians were inferring by doing this was really what was at issue here. And to relate this to something that we might more readily understand, who knows what the proper way is to dispose of an American flag? It's an actual question. I don't ask very many questions, but everybody knows. Burn it. You're supposed to burn an American flag. Now, when we hear burning a flag, what do we usually think of? Oh, somebody's out lighting a flag on fire. We can't allow that, right? I mean, we usually you hear somebody burning a flag, you think, well, that's, that's a horrible thing. 
Well, the burning of the flag isn't really the issue. The actual code of the flag says to dispose of a flag that has been retired or is worn out or whatever is that you are supposed to burn it. But the burning of the flag isn't really the issue. It's the motivation and the intention behind what you're doing that is at issue. If somebody sets a flag on fire in protest, that's a horrible thing. That's something that we don't stand for, right? That we shouldn't stand for. But when you have to retire a flag or, or dispose of it properly, then burning of it is appropriate. The same thing is going on, similar thing is going on with the vessels from God's temple. They were just vessels. But the Babylonians were using them in an attempt to disgrace and mock God. And that's really what was at issue here. They are using them to show how their gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone were superior to the Jewish God. And therein was the problem. Belshazzar should have known better than this. He wasn't ignorant of the God of the Jews. And we'll see that later on in the chapter, actually. He was probably a little boy when Nebuchadnezzar had his episode, when you know, Nebuchadnezzar took his seven-year camping trip, or whatever you, whatever you want to call it, when he was laid out insane for seven years. But he would have heard the story. He would have known about the king's decree. He wasn't ignorant of the God of the Jews, but what was he? In this instance, he was drunk. He was a drunken, arrogant idiot at this party. And in his drunken stupor, he was challenging God. Remarkable. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was when he was angry that he made stupid decisions to challenge God. For his son or grandson, it took alcohol, but the result was actually the same. Starting in verse 5, we see that there is a response to what they're doing. If you look at verse 5, Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. So while they're in the middle of this debauchery, a hand appears and begins writing on the wall. It says it's opposite the lampstand. The lamps would have been up where the king was so that they could all see him clearly. And this takes place... Um, either right next to or on the wall opposite. It's really not clear which. But either way, it's apparently being done in a place where the king is able to clearly see this because this all happens so that the king can see it. And, you know, archaeologists have found what they think was this room, and they have actually found a room with plaster walls. So once again, you have some history or some archaeology that does coincide with these things that we're seeing here. So this hand starts writing something on the plaster walls. Well, the king doesn't like this. Verse 6, Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. You know what happened? The king sobered up right quick when this happened. His face grows pale. His thoughts alarm him. He knew exactly what was happening. He knew what this was. He was no dummy. He might have been stupid, but he was no dummy. Here he is standing in front of this crowd, probably having a temple vessel filled with wine in his hand, and this disembodied hand starts writing on the wall. And he sees this. His hip joints go slack. His knees start knocking. One commentator put it this way. In his excitement, he no longer could sit down, but hardly had the strength to stand. He was a quivering mess at this point. Just moments before, his drunken courage was allowing him to laugh in the face of God, and now he was terrified of what it was that he'd just done. So what does he do? There must have been a king's handbook that told you what happens when you see things that alarm you at night. Verse 7, the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. So here we go again. Send in the clowns, the same group as before. Many years had passed since we had first seen these guys, close to 70 years to be precise. So it's doubtful that these are the exact same individuals, but the system had continued. The education, the religious elements, the occultic practices, they were all still alive and well in Babylon. So he calls them in again, and it says, The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, 
Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Reading right out of the handbook. Step one, call in the wise men. Check. Step two, offer to make them filthy rich and give them the keys of the kingdom. Check. The only thing missing is that he doesn't threaten their lives, which Nebuchadnezzar would have done. So maybe he's a little nicer than Nebuchadnezzar. But he offers them purple garments, a gold necklace, and authority as third ruler. And these are all signs of authority and royalty. So he's offering them a prominent position in the kingdom to be third ruler. And there's some debate on this whole third ruler thing. Why would he say third ruler? But I believe it means that he would be third in command. Well, why would third factor in? Well, what we talked about before. Nabonidus was the first ruler. He was the actual king. Then Belshazzar was his co-regent. He was second in command, really, of the kingdom. So all Belshazzar could offer was third place. So he's offering third ruler, and that's what he does here. Well, we're going to see in verses 8 and 9 how well this will turn out. And that's, this is where we'll stop for this morning on these two verses. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Big surprise, after 70 years, these guys hadn't gotten any better at, at interpreting these things. They couldn't tell him what it said. In our next study, we'll see the details of the message, but evidently they could not read what this hand was writing on the wall. And it's really unknown why, because when Daniel ends up reading it, we'll see that it's written in Aramaic. And that's a language that they should have known how to read. So some things, some people think that maybe they could read the words, but that just didn't make any sense to them. And maybe that's a possibility. But another possibility might be that like the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, they weren't able to read it because this was a mystery revealed by God. And God wrote it, but he wouldn't allow just anyone to be able to read it and understand it. But whatever the reason, their inability to tell him what it said doesn't make the king feel any better. Now he's really worried and his nobles are getting concerned about this as well. And you can just see this party just come to a grinding halt because of this. And we're going to stop there for this morning. But the, sage, the stage is set. The king has done a dumb thing. He's challenged God, and God has responded to his challenge. And you know, there are so many people out there that challenge God every day, and God is patient towards them. And we don't know if this is a first offense for Belshazzar. We really don't know anything else about Belshazzar other than what we see here. Maybe he had a habit of doing things like this. Maybe this wasn't the first time that he had done something really dumb like this. What is kind of interesting about the only writing that we have about Belshazzar on that clay cylinder, that Nabonidus cylinder I'd mentioned before, was that Nabonidus, his father, was writing it he wrote this cylinder as a prayer to his God. He, he, had, he was uh, like building these temples or like um, uh, refurbishing these temples. And as he did this, he was dedicating them, and he wrote these cylinders as a prayer to the gods that he was building these temples for. But on this cylinder, what Nabonidus, his father, was writing was a prayer to his God, and he wrote that Belshazzar would have reverences for his God and that he wouldn't make any cultic mistakes, it says. So it kind of makes you wonder, maybe Belshazzar had a habit of making mistakes when it came to gods or religion or something like that. Maybe this wasn't the first time that he had used these vessels or other vessels um, in, a, in a way like this. But here we're seeing that there came a time when God said, enough is enough. In the book of Romans, we have time. Turn to Romans chapter 2 with me for just a minute. Paul is talking about those who live depraved, depraved lives. And in Romans 2, starting in verse 2, 
Paul writes here, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of his riches or his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Men mistake God's patience, forbearance, his kindness, as lack of ability or lack of care or the fact that, oh, I can get away with this. When God doesn't act immediately, they think of it as getting away with it, when in reality, they're missing out on time to repent. It's very much like we saw in the last chapter with Nebuchadnezzar. When Daniel advised him to change his ways, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream and he knows what's coming. God tells him what is going to happen. And Daniel is sitting there telling him, you need to change some things. And a year later, an entire year goes by and the judgment falls upon Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it's not really clear in that passage whether or not he could have stayed God's hands. But the fact that Daniel advised him of that seems to make you think that Nebuchadnezzar did have an opportunity to not have God judge him that way, not have God do that. And the point is that everyone should realize that judgment is coming for all who oppose God and refuse his offer of salvation. It may not be now, but it will come someday. Hopefully that's not anyone here that we're talking about, that living a life of refusing to obey or honor God, thinking that there will be no consequences for that. But none of us should be got with a golden vessel in our hands when God starts writing on the wall. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you. We thank you for another opportunity to be in your word and for the book of Daniel, Lord. And we thank you for um, just the examples that we have, Lord, in your word. And we thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, the time that we can study. We thank you, Lord, for the time back in Daniel's day um, that we can see these things and see these examples. And we just pray, Lord, that that uh, as we know that that people can be doing depraved things, Lord, and, and sinful things even today, just pray, Lord, that that would be something that as believers we would be keeping ourselves from. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, just glorify you and honor you, Lord, the things that we do each and every day, that we would uh, just be pleasing to you, Lord, in all that we do. We pray that we would take these examples from your word and use them in our lives, Lord, to uh, walk in a way that is, is worthy of you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to um, just be sharing the gospel, Lord, with, with anyone and everyone that we come in contact with. Lord, I just thank you again for our time. Thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to worship. Pray for the next hour um, as we worship and hear your word. And I just pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and help us to understand, um, Lord, what you would have us to from uh, your word once again. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.